โมตัสสะบกวาตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบกวาตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนโมตัสสะบกวาตัวรหัตัวสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะพุทธังธรรมังสังฆังนามัสสมานิ again uh, counted twelve different nationalities visiting the monastery last Saturday was the same and I find it very uh, heartening to uh, see um, people of a apparent diversity coming together and 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 participating in and contributing to spiritual community and, uh, obviously. Um, you know, there's something that uh, everybody senses, something that we all share, that is more important, um, goes beyond the uh, limited and uh, inherently inadequate identity of nationality. This is not a, this is not a an English monastery. This is not a Thai monastery. It's not a Sri Lankan monastery. It's not a Hungarian monastery, Latvian. This is a Buddhist monastery, a place where people uh, feel they can come and uh, participate in spiritual community, and as I said, contribute also to spiritual community. And certainly, I think uh, personally, it's one of the things that I find really gladdening. You can look around and see a lot of bad stuff that's happening, and think, well, what can I contribute? Where can I contribute? Uh, what can I do about this? Well, I, I personally feel. Very confident that spiritual community is something that we can all do about this. I think something that, for those of us who do enjoy the benefit of spiritual community, we sense how nourishing it is, how relevant it is, and how things are possible in spiritual community that 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 often are not possible elsewhere. When when you don't feel You belong to something that you really respect and feel good about, and and inspires you and uplifts you. Then it can take just a lot of energy to survive, a lot of energy just to get by. Whereas feeling that one is part of something larger than me and my world, something that that is uh, so I can look up to and respect and admire. Uh, in and of itself, is a a great support and a great blessing. So, so as I said, seeing so many different uh, nationalities, different people coming and and being part of it is something I find uh, a really delightful. And it's also, of course, uh, very interesting and and sometimes a cause of. Uh, misunderstandings because we don't all speak English. We don't. Need, <clears throat> those of us who do speak English don't all speak it in the same way. You know, sometimes <clears throat> I'm speaking to Ajahn Punyo, and I think we're talking the same English, but he he tells me we're not. Um, in New Zealand, we have a certain way of speaking that's not the same as they do in Yorkshire, and and not to mention, of course, the differences uh, <clears throat> between the non-English speaking countries, and and yet there is still something that, even though there are misunderstandings, that's more important than our language and our identity. And, 
Some of the misunderstandings are humorous, and we have a, a good laugh about them. Some of them, you know, a bit difficult and take a bit of effort to sort out. That's, that also happens. Uh, but there's nothing new about that. That's, that's one reason why the Buddha was so um, insistent and so explicit about paying attention to speech, the way we speak, how we speak, when we speak, when we don't speak, the words we use, how we use the words, why we use the words. And uh, so speech is a a profoundly important area of practice and and something that, um, like a lot of things in our current culture, we can just get very casual about. Casual clothes, casual about values, casual speech. And the lack of conscious attention in this area has far-reaching consequences. Um, and as I said, sometimes it's, um, it's kind of humorous. I was reflecting, remembering this morning, uh, some years ago, uh, I think it was then the uh, venerable uh, Vipassi, some of you might remember who, who used to live here. He told me how um, when he was living at Amarawati, um, one morning, one of the nuns came and asked him how he's doing, and he was having a good morning and feeling on top of the world. And so he said, "Oh, great, high as a kite, feel great, absolutely marvelous," and thought nothing more about it. And then it was several hours later, this nun came up to see him and said, "Oh, I'm so sorry, Ajahn, I'm so sorry, Venerable, I, I can't find any medicine. I've spent all morning looking for medicine for you." He said, "What's your problem?" And well. Turned out she was a German nun, and, and Heiserkite is the throat infection. If you uh, if you <laughs> if you speak German, Heiserkite is uh, is not having a good time. It's you know you've got a sore throat, you got strep throat. <laughs> so um, you know, well, you know, okay, they got over that, and it was <laughs> it wasn't disastrous. Um, sometimes it's not so humorous. And those of you that are familiar with the scriptures or will be familiar with the uh, occasion where. The, uh, the Buddha was instructing the monks on the meditation on repulsiveness of the body. Uh, that, uh, you know, not just to uh, get intoxicated by, by the delicious food and the, the beauty of birdsong and the, and the fragrance of orange blossom and all the rest of you know, the, the sensory world, but you know, to counter our intoxication and infatuation with the sensual pleasures by meditating on the repulsiveness of the body. And, and I'm sure the Buddha was very lucid and very careful in delivering his discourse on the meditation on the repulsiveness of the body, otherwise known as Asupakamatan. And, and once he'd done that, he, uh, he went off on retreat. And, um, and then when he came back, he found out that uh, a whole bunch of the monks had topped themselves. They, um, they, they, you know, they heard the Buddha's discourse on the repulsiveness of the body, and and then got caught up. They didn't quite hear what he was talking about. They heard the words, but they didn't really get the message, and and so they got caught up. And, and instead of letting go of intoxication with the body, they got caught up in loathing the body, hating the body, and decided, well, there's no point in living. And so they they got some of this this this, uh, this character to come along and. You know, cut their heads off, slit their throats, and so there's a whole bunch of dead monks around. 
So the Buddha said, well, okay, rather we need another meditation practice. And so that was the occasion for the Buddha's giving the discourse on anapanasati, mindfulness of breathing. So however uh, careful we are um, with our speech, we can still get misunderstood and... and um, but most of the time, the problem is not with so on, so it's not so much with being misunderstood as actually being heedless. You know, we don't we don't really recognise, we don't get the message that speech is powerful. Waji kama, the, the three types of kama the Buddha talked about: kaya kama, waji kama, mano kama. You know, there's not just one type of action; there's three types of action: action with the body. Mm-hmm. Action with the speech and action with the mind are three types of, of karma that we can create. Intentional activity and all three have consequences. And so uh, the Buddha was really asking us to be really careful about all three levels. Um, with what we do, okay, so maybe you know we, we're not going around killing things and, and stealing stuff and, and so on. But you know, how careful are we about our speech. We have um, in the five precepts, the one of the precepts, the the fourth precept, Musawada, Wirapmanisikapadang uh, Samadhiyami. I undertake the training to refrain from false speech. And when the Buddha pointed out one of the things he said that he said that if you're capable of telling a conscious lie there's no evil act you're not capable of. Wow, that's heavy. If you're capable of intentionally telling a lie, you're, there's no evil act you're not capable of doing. Well, you know, I mean, the Buddha didn't just put a spin on these things to frighten us. This is the truth. And, and so it's one of the five precepts. It's, it's that important. It's also important, I would suggest, that people differentiate between that fourth precept, I should undertake to refrain from false speech. And what then the Buddha also went on to talk about, he talked about the, the ten wholesome acts. You know, sometimes people forget that the fourth precept is about false speech and then they get all, all uptight and confused about you know minor deviations of speech and think they've broken the precept. But... The Buddha elaborated on it and talked about the, the ten right actions, four of which are four forms of right speech. And again, very explicit. Pay attention, he said, to, okay, so it's not lying, that's one thing, but also, he said, be careful with slandering, you know, where, where you, you hear things that you go and repeat elsewhere and it's divisive, you know, divisive speech, or uh, abusive speech. Which is coarse and hurtful. I mean, probably all of us can remember where, you know, in the heat of a moment, somebody said something hurtful. You know. They didn't thump us, they didn't throw a brick at us, <laughs> they didn't stab us. But actually, the, the words feel like being sometimes being stabbed. Really hurtful speech can do that, coarse speech can do that, vulgar speech can do that. And is something we need to train in. And, and you recognize that you know, heedlessness in this area, you see like people who grow up in, in a family where, 
where vulgar or coarse or abusive speech is normal, and then all the children pick it up. And it's, it's like this, this toxic energy gets spread around. And, and there, again, there's uh, very painful consequences. So the Buddha encourages us to reflect on that, not just to be judgmental, but to consider the effect and what happens when we, when what happens when we get caught up in abusive, unkind, or coarse speech. I, uh, I, I was brought up in a family whereby everybody was, you know, you never, nobody ever swore or said bad things. My parents were impeccable with their speech, and can I can remember just one vaguely naughty word I said once, and my my grandmother washed my mouth out with a bar of soap. I can still remember it. Uh, sticking this bar of Knight's Castile soap in my mouth. And, and I think maybe that's one reason why my speech deteriorated after that. And I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, still, I'm still working on that. I, occasionally I say things that I shouldn't. And I, I can't really blame my, my nana, but I think that, was, that wasn't the right way to help me understand the consequences of, of coarse speech. And then also... Um, the Buddha, the fourth one, is gossip. Yeah, the Buddha identified gossip as a total waste of time. You know, it's, a, it's frivolous and, uh, and heedless and, and unhelpful. And so the, uh, holding these things up, you know, these, uh, identifying these, giving us these forms of um, you know, false speech and heedless speech and, and encouraging us to cultivate what he called right speech, yeah, in, the, in the Eightfold Path, you know, right speech, and something that we can cultivate. And so in practice, we have, this, um, we have this very clear, explicit teaching about you know, these, these four things here, this is right speech. And then in everyday life, uh, what does that mean? You know, how do we exercise right speech in everyday life? And well, it's good to internalize that form of the understanding of, of the four aspects of right speech. But then in everyday life, you can also pay attention to what is it like, for instance, what does it feel like when, when you meet somebody whose speech is impeccable? When you meet somebody, or if you have the good fortune to meet somebody who is selfless, you know, really right speech, and you take the Eightfold Path seriously, you know, the, the fact of right speech, it can only really be right speech when there's right view, when there's right understanding, right perspective. You know, literally speaking, it's, it's when a being is, is, is free from identification with the personality. Most of the time, I would suggest most of the time, our, our speech is just... Aspects of our personality, manipulating, controlling, trying to get what we want, trying to get rid of what we don't want, and, and so on. It's very manipulative. That's called uh, micha waja, not samma waja, not right speech, but micha waja, wrong speech. Yeah. Very manipulative, very controlling, devious, and not straight speech, yeah, but devious speech. But if you have the good fortune to uh, meet somebody or listen to somebody who who is uh, well-established in training, been training for many years, and who we would consider as impeccable in speech, to really listen to that. And then to listen to their words and 
Listen, where does the where do the words of such a being resonate within you? You know, I like listening to even these days. I've got these tapes of Ajahn Chah, and I still like listening to Ajahn Chah's words. You know, some of you might have heard um, Ajahn Jayasaro talking about how much he enjoyed listening to Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Chah speak, and and he even um, he even talks about. He said, "I'd be quite happy to listen to Ajahn Chah reading a telephone book." Because words, language is a conduit. Language is a conduit for the deeper dimension of the being. And if we take that on board, well, of course, seeking out those who are free is a way of connecting with a deeper dimension of that person and really, really, really taking it in, really enjoying, delighting on the speech of somebody who is, is freed. Emily, if you have such a good fortune. Yeah. But then also reflecting on, well, you know, my speech is a conduit. And when I'm speaking from a bad place, that's what I'm, that's what I'm putting out on the world. You know, that's what I'm giving uh, to the world. And, and so considering how, how powerful and how strong our speech is, you know, we might be getting all indignant about politicians are like that and the world is like this and so on. But what are we actually doing uh, what are we putting out onto the world? Okay, so maybe you're not cheating on your tax forms or uh, you know, supporting the, the killing industry by paying people to go killing animals so you can eat them. Maybe, maybe you've stopped doing that stuff, but what about speech? What are we putting out onto the world? Because the speech is really it's a, it's a conduit for the heart. And that's our contribution. And... So also recognising that the effect of when we are not impeccable in our speech ourselves, you know, what happens when we follow what technically called micha uh, uh, waja, you know, or wrong speech, false speech, manipulative speech, devious speech, what happens? Uh, does it fill us with goodness? Does it fill us with gladness? You know, does it give us a sense of inner calm and clarity? Or does it bring chaos? Because it doesn't take a lot of study to recognise that when we compromise our speech, like, for instance, if we're dishonest, outwardly, worst example of just telling outright lies, if we do that, then there's a direct inner correlation with a lack of inner structure, inner confidence. Confidence... and calm is compromised. I personally think it would be very good if psychiatrists stopped prescribing medication for confused people and encourage them to keep the five precepts. And I'm not being frivolous in this. Often it's because of the lack of impeccability in our actions of body and speech that there's a lack of inner structure and a lack of inner calm, a lack of inner clarity. And, and, of course, you, you, don't, you, you just look around at the world and you see, well, it's, it's very normal. You know, people are very, very willing, very, very okay about saying one thing and doing something else. It's, it's almost like, you know, just what you can get away with, really. I, I remember there was a, a really gross example of, of this in the elections, I don't know, in the last few years in America. I was, I was um, reading or watching some election broadcast and... There was a, a politician in America 
got caught out telling an absolute blatant lie. <laughs> just, just, you know, they were talking about how they were landing in the former Yugoslavia under fire and how dangerous and terrible it was and how experienced they were with being in the war zone and so on. And, and then a few days later, they showed a clip of this politician landing there and people coming and giving them flowers and the band playing the whole thing. It was, it was an absolute, total, blatant lie. But then it was responded, oh, well, actually, on that occasion, I misspoke. <laughs> so it was kind of putting a spin on it, but it wasn't, it wasn't a blatant lie, it was misspeaking. Well, actually, it was a blatant lie. And these days, with the, the media industry, blatant lies are considered okay. That's what you can get away with. Well, what's the consequence of that? The consequence of that is that we fall prey to being very casual in our speech and saying one thing and doing another. And... It happens with, uh, like in the monastery here, you find, you know, it happens over and over again. People book an appointment to come and see me and I put time aside and I arrange my calendar so I can be there and they don't turn up. Regularly, regularly it happens. And, or I heard recently that on the retreats at Amarawati recently, uh, as an Amaro's retreat, there were, there were 50 places and there were 35 cancellations. Yeah, 35 cancellations. These are like spaces that could have been filled by somebody else, but 35 people. Now, of those, you would probably accept maybe 10% or something actually got sick or there was a genuine reason, but almost certainly it wasn't 35 out of 50 had a really good reason. Basically, people booked casually. Said, oh, well, I'll go on a retreat with Ajahn Amaro unless something better comes up, and knowing full well that they were taking a space. And... And this casual attitude to speech, or in this case to signing up to something, um, what is the consequence of that? What is the consequence? The consequence of this lack of impeccability is a lack of inner confidence. We can't trust ourselves. Again, people got serious emotional mental disorders who say, well, what's the lack of order? Okay, well, it could well be the certain environment that people grew up in. There's a lack of proper structure. That's all right. That's, that you know, needs to be addressed. But also it could be that we ourselves are not living a life of impeccability and we don't have order in our outer life of body and speech and so there's a lack of inner order. And there are consequences. This brings increased stress. Disease, discomfort, disorder, and and depression, you know, sadness, and and an inability, a lack of, like life is sad. You know, it's just you know, endlessly, if it's not in one's own world, it's other people's world. Endlessly, people facing intense difficulty and sadness and and disappointment, and it comes to all of us and. Do we have the resource? Do we have the resource? Do we have the the storehouse of goodness with which to accommodate life's difficulties? Again, as I say, other people's difficulties, the difficulties of the world, the, the horror of what's going on at the moment in Syria that we all know about, and the disappointment of what's going on in Egypt, and when that's resolved, it'll be somewhere else, or or the, 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 the mountain of plastic that's floating around in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Like, is it ever going to be possible to deal with this environmental disaster? There's this intense difficulties that we have to 
face in life, the outer ones and then the inner ones, our own, the struggle with, with personal conceit and ignorance and inner, inner pollution. If we're going to accommodate this and, and really receive it, not just distract ourselves and pretend it's not happening, if we're going to receive it and potentially transform it, we need a huge resource, a huge storehouse of goodness. And a lot of that goodness comes from uh, impeccability. It's just our behaviour of body and speech. And, and this is something that we overlook. <clears throat> we often feel like it's something we've got to do. We've got to go and do more retreats or go and get more initiations or, or read more books or whatever, when sometimes what we need to do is stop telling porkies. <laughs> <laughs> be more impeccable with our speech be more careful with what we say and what we don't say and so if we get that correlation and you see this is a way of building up an inner strength to be really careful what we say when we're about to exaggerate to be really careful we're about to say something unkind sometimes it can be so tempting to have a poke at somebody you don't like. I mean, there are some, some, some rotten eggs out there. You know, you want to really just take them down with some, some really cutting speech and say something really clever and nasty to somebody. It can be so tempting. You kind of get a cheap rush. It's kind of like sugar or caffeine. You know, you kind of, kind of, kind of have a poke at somebody and make them feel bad. Well, yeah, you make them feel bad, but then they go and make somebody else feel bad, and you have this reverberation just from our heed of speech. Yeah. So the pain that we create, and also the limitations that, that come as a result of it. The, the inability, if we, don't, if we don't have self-trust, then we can't, don't, we can't relax. Yeah. It's like, you know, when you're around somebody who you don't trust, you always feel on edge. Somebody's going to, you're going to hurt you or say something unkind, whatever. Well, if if we know that we're somebody we can't trust, well, then it's like that as well with us. We, you know, we we can't relax around ourselves because we're somebody as well. You know, it's, a, it's a kind of strange thing. We tend to forget that we're somebody, and so if we're not impeccable, we can't trust ourselves. We can't relax. And the bad news is, when we can't relax, then we can't we can't really be loving. You know, being loving being sensitive, being kind, is not possible. And so we are, now, the possibility of well-being is seriously compromised. So, in practice, cultivating right speech, cultivating skillful speech, um, finding a standard for ourselves, how do we we practice it? Yes, having the, the technical details of what the Buddha said, but then in, in practice, you know, one of the things we can do is, is just say, well, I'm just going to be as honest as I can be and then learn from my mistakes, you know, like with the other precepts. You know, I undertake the training to... That's what the precepts are all about. Nonetheless, thou shalt not business. It's a kind of, I undertake the training. I undertake the training to refrain from false speech. Okay, that's a, and, and if I've got a habit of telling an occasional lie here, a little exaggeration here, well, I'll try my best, but I can't expect myself, I can't demand that I'm going to be perfect, but I'll try. And then I'll learn from the mistakes that I make. Yeah. 
So I'll try and be as honest as I can and then learn from my mistakes. Now, if we, if we find that a useful standard, then um, you, you do need to be cautious about thinking that, that um, being as honest as you can all the time doesn't mean uh, going around you know, telling everything to everybody about your life all of the time. You know, that's a mistake you can make. I think being honest means just kind of sharing everything with everybody. And the first time you meet somebody, you start telling them everything about your life, all your weaknesses and all the horrible mistakes you've made and whatever. Well, that, that's not being honest. That's grasping the principle of honesty without feeling for what we're really doing. Yeah. I'm going to be honest. That's right. I'm going to be honest. And this is I'm going to be honest. honest. Trying to be honest is not the point. It's, that's the mess, that's the principle, but feeling. What does it mean to be honest? Well, to be honest, telling everything about myself all the time is actually, to be honest, that's actually being irresponsible. You know, because, you know, you've got to find the right time to tell people. Even, even, if, you know, even if you need to um, say something difficult to somebody, it might be the right thing to say. Maybe this person needs to hear what you've got to say. But if I'm being honest, it doesn't mean to say, just going to tell them I don't like your face or something. That's not being honest. Yeah. Yeah, being honest, the Buddha again was very specific. He said, right time, right place, right words, right motivation. If we're honest with our hearts, it means we're sensitive. If we're honest, it means we care, actually. If we're honest, if we're really honest with ourselves, we care how this person feels. Yeah. And so we're going to be interested in right time. You know, is this the right time to say this difficult thing to this person? We stop. Like my grandmother used to say, count to ten before you open your mouth, Keith. Yeah. It's a good idea, actually. So I think I know the right thing to say to this person. I do. But if I count to ten, I realize, no, this is not the right time to say it. They're not ready. This person is not ready to hear this. I'm ready to say it, (laughs) but they're not ready to hear it, so it's not the right time. Not the right place. Pointing out something difficult to somebody when there's other people around, maybe it's not the right time, not the right place to do it. Right words. Sometimes if you don't stop and... If we don't feel the words that we're saying, our words might come across as accusative. Whereas actually, I'm trying to help this person. And so just telling them that they're wrong is not, that's not the right words to, to be using. Right time, right place, right words, right motivation. So to be conscious that, yeah, actually, my motivation for saying this is because I want to help them. Initially, I want to say it just because I don't like them. Uh, but now I've kind of restrained myself long enough and felt the motivation a little bit clearer and realized that actually, yeah, I want to say this because I want to benefit this person. I want to help her. So, so considering with, in, in the skillful speech, it's helpful to check to see, can I choose to not say something? That's a good barometer. Can I choose to not say this? 
We might be so caught up in our altruistic motivation. You know, we're going to have to help this person because they obviously can't see it for themselves. You know, and obviously nobody else has been bold enough and had enough integrity to tell them that I'm going to tell them. Yeah. Well, just check and ask yourself, well, can I not tell them? Yeah. Can I not tell them? Because if we can't choose to not say something, then the chances are that our speech is compulsive, and maybe that's all I'll pick up, as our compulsiveness. And so when we get it wrong, being willing to learn from it, because even though we do have good intention, even though hopefully we do have good intention, we, we make an effort, we try to do the right thing, when we get it wrong, to really be willing to feel it, to really be willing when we, when we get lost in unskillful speech, whether it's an exaggeration or unkind, to stop and feel it, to go and spend some time on your own is a good thing. When you know, you've, you've, you've lost it, you've, you've said something that you wish you hadn't said and you shouldn't have said, you really shouldn't have said. Well, instead of just distracting ourselves, maybe it's a good thing to, to go to your room and be quiet if you've got the space to do that, or go for a walk. Going for a walk is a good idea. Maybe you've got some energy going and you've got some passion going and you've just shouted your mouth off and said the wrong thing and now you feel really bad. Well, not distracting ourselves, but really, really welcome the message. The bad feeling is the message. This is something that we've got to keep reminding ourselves over and over again, uh, that when we're feeling bad, there's a cause for it. Uh, you say something unkind to somebody, you feel bad afterwards, well, you're supposed to. <laughs> we're supposed to feel bad. And that's, we don't feel bad because we're a bad person. The idea of a bad person, that's, that doesn't, that's not, that's not, we're not talking about being bad people. We're talking about skillful and unskillful. So that was an unskillful action. Here's the result. How do we get the message? Take some time and really breathe it in. Feel, the, feel that. You know, this is the consequence. There's the cause. Here's the effect. Yeah. Really feel it. Mm. Until we hopefully get the message, because that the, that that painful feeling is appropriate, and will hopefully teach us the place of skillful speech. We'll be more careful next time, yeah? because we we keep doing this stuff over and over again. This is normal. People start wars through speech. They ruin relationships over just heedless speech. But they could also mend relationships and bring peace through skillful speech. So speech is very powerful. That's the message. Yeah. And this, is, this has always been the message in the time of the Buddha. If you read this, the scriptures, you'll, you'll see over and over again there's, there's, uh, there's these, these situations where the, uh, there was a, an example of uh, somebody suffering, somebody having a bad time, and the Buddha giving a discourse, and at the end of the discourse, uh, there's this this comment of comment that it's like it's like a jar that was turned upside down has been set upright. You know, there's this this feeling, this wonderful when you hear skillful speech, direct speech, straight true speech. You know, true speech when somebody speaks the truth, it's very powerful. You know, an utterance of truth that comes from a place of integrity is tremendously powerful. And what we've got today, the Buddha's teachings, you know, 
All of them were utterances of truth that were given 2,600-something years ago. And people rememorized them for 500 years, and then they wrote them down, and we've still got them today yeah, because they're so profoundly powerful. So uh, to register that and to, you know, to, in our own life, when we make mistakes, to be willing to learn from it, and then also to recognize the goodness that, that when, when, when we do get it right... Or, for instance, the, the situation of, you know, for instance, if, if we've, we've made a mistake, and maybe we, we, um, we uh, spoke dishonestly yeah, or unkindly. You know, maybe, you, maybe you told an untruth or you, you've been perpetuating an untruth. And then you meet with a friend and you find a way of confessing it as being received in truth we were being received in our truth is a beautiful thing a wonderful thing and again to register that you know the, the beauty the joy the nourishment the happiness the well-being that comes from integrity of speech yeah. often we miss this you know we say something bad and we feel bad but we miss it we say something good or there's truth there's goodness and we miss it yeah, so the buddha encouraged us to, in both these to wise reflection uh, whether it's an unskillful speech or skillful speech helps us go in the right direction. And hopefully, little by little, what we get, the message is that when there is integrity of speech outwardly, when we're being honest and skillful, then this leads to an inner clarity, an inner calm, and an inner contentment, and an inner ability. When we, when we, if we speak straight, then we can think straight. How often is it the case you say, oh, I can't think straight. I just can't think straight. And maybe we should ask and say, well, am I speaking straight? Because in the casual culture that we live in, well, you know, it's easy to get some seriously heedless habits of, you know, maybe we're just, our speech is maybe not totally dishonest and devious, but maybe it's just heedless and sloppy and manipulative and casual. And so we can practice not speaking even if it's only for 10 seconds, really learning to inhibit, as we learn to inhibit our actions of body, to inhibit our actions of speech and be more careful, more cautious, more precise, and to then see how that correlates with an increased resource, an increased sense of well-being, that then sees an increased structure, outer integrity and inner integrity. Yeah. going together, getting that and and seeing the difference between contemplation and proliferation now contemplation is something certainly praised by the Buddha by the great teachers you know, to contemplate life and what's the difference between contemplation and proliferation well one way of seeing the difference is that contemplation you can stop and start If you're contemplating a theme, contemplating skillful speech, you know, contemplating this situation, did this, did this, and this, this happened, and that happened, and did this, it felt good, did this, it felt bad, and you're contemplating it, considering it, yeah. and then some feelings come up, some remorse comes up, some confusion comes up. If it's contemplation, at that point, you start getting overwhelmed, you say, you stop, and you come back, and you feel. You know, this is contemplation. 
If it's proliferation, it's not quantum, it's proliferation, it's just inner proliferation, again, is a direct consequence of external heedlessness of speech. The inner proliferation going, wah, 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 it just goes on and on and on and on, and you get totally distracted and all over the place, and you're not thinking straight. So. So learning to speak straight, learning to think straight. And hopefully we get the message that skillful speech leads to this inner strength, which leads to the inner ability to let go and to go to calm and contentment, if we can make that that connection. And so uh, talking about um, skillful speech also, it's, uh, it would be remiss to not consider the place of silence. That... Uh, Yes. words are so cheap these days, whether it's on Twitter or, or Facebook or your webpage or your blog or your, uh, whatever, talking and chat shows and uh, yak, yak, yak. Is there an appreciation of silence? Do we really appreciate? Well, presumably all of us here do. That's why we're in this place where we start off, our, that we start off this delightful evening together by being silent for half an hour. That's how we celebrate. The way we celebrate in the monastery is by being silent. Mm. Our job as monks is, our main job is to be silent. The the samana. When Ajahn Chah was, our teacher was talking about the place of monks in society, he was was actually criticising those monks who were busy promoting themselves and and, and, and advertising as the place of monks. Monks are supposed to promote themselves with their silence. That's what they do. They move around in society, monks and nuns, summoners, about being silent, about being still. And, and if there is that, I think that's a real gift. That's a great gift to the society, to the world. And I was uh, recently looking at one of these... Uh, these uh, Buddhist chat rooms online where people ask questions and can you give me some help and then somebody else replies and somebody else replies and, and backwards and forwards is, uh, is uh, chatting away with things and I, I can see the place. I, I can recognise that, that often people feel a lack of community and they want to connect and, and certainly I can see the benefit of that. But I think there's also, uh, it's also good to, to recognise the limitations of that because... You know, maybe if you were chatting with a teacher, and this is often the case, I would expect, having lived with some wise teachers myself, that uh, you know, you go to see the teacher, the teacher's response with your deep, meaningful, serious, super important question is just to look at you in silence. <laughs> Sometimes Ajahn Chah would give you what you call the, the water buffalo look. It's kind of like there's nothing there. <laughs> I think sometimes... The accessibility of these uh, so-called Dhamma chat rooms is um, people just indulge in talking because they, the world doesn't really, these days, often um, value, doesn't remind us, doesn't hold up the place of silence. And, and in our inner contemplation, um, that's... That's the direction we should be going, basically. Uh, there's a, um, a beautiful talk, one of my favourite talks in 
the collective teachings of Ajahn Chah. Uh, many of you will have come across. There's a talk in there called What is Contemplation? And there's a bunch of Western monks sitting around and grilling Ajahn Chah. Is this what you mean by contemplation? Is that what you mean by contemplation? Do you mean thinking about the 32 parts of the body? Do you mean thinking about impermanence, unsatisfactory, not self? Do you mean this? Do you mean that? And Ajahn Chah says, well, he said, in the beginning, yes, you do go thinking about all those themes. You know, you've got all these themes in the scriptures. You know, the, the ten right actions, and the, the four right speech, and the eightfold path, and the seven factors of enlightenment, and, and the Bodhipakya Dhammas, and the Paticca Samapada, all of this, all of these lists, and these links, and these, these that you're supposed to memorize and contemplate. All of those things, yes, you think about them using your everyday thinking mind. This is impermanent, that's impermanent, this is, this is the coarse level of thinking, he said. Keep yap yap is the expression in Thai he used. Uh, in the beginning, is keep yap yap. It's, it's coarse thinking. But then he said, then then it goes on to keep na kwam singup, or contemplating in silence. And so, if there's skillful speech, hopefully it'll introduce us to skillful contemplation, which will introduce us into silent investigation. Yeah. So there's a link between these. It's not just that. You know, by practicing mindful speech, that we're being a good person, but it also has a direct correlation with our, our inner contemplation. And in the world that we live in, it's a, it's a gift. It's a gift to give to the world to be able to to be able to not speak. I don't know if you've you've ever noticed when somebody comes to you and they. They feel they've got a terrible problem and they've just got to talk to you about their problem and that you've got to help them with their problem. And and it is actually quite easy. Um, well, I find, still I find regularly, somebody comes to me and asks for help with their problem. It's quite easy to go into thinking about what, what can I say to help them. I mean, often the most helpful thing you can do for somebody is to be silent you know, and to listen to them. That is one of the most helpful things we can do to ourselves is to listen to ourselves, to stop talking, to stop always talking and telling ourselves how we should be, how we shouldn't be, and just stop talking and listen. And to listen to ourselves is a great gift. And to listen to other people. For other people, sometimes you, sometimes you find you know, it's the most wonderful thing that you could give them because for some people they've never been listened to. And it can be the most healing thing that you can give them. It's not the case that they need to be told what to do. They just need to be received, just as we need to be received. Um, and it's, I think, not, uh, not incidental, not irrelevant, not insignificant that, that in, um, in the Theravadan Buddhist tradition, the very word for a disciple of the Buddha is Savaka. Like you'll see, and uh, we don't have them on our shrine here, but we have one in our reception room. You'll see in a lot of Buddhist monasteries, particularly in Burma, but also in Thailand. You'll see on the right and left-hand side, there's the Buddha in the middle. On the right and left-hand side, you've got the Venerable Sariputta and the Venerable Moggallana, the Buddha's right-hand man and left-hand man, the two chief disciples. And the word for these disciples, the Pali word for these disciples, is Savaka. And the word savaka literally means one who listens. 
And I think it's a rather, uh, I always found it a rather beautiful thing, with, particularly with the Burmese, Buddha, the Burmese images of Venerable Sariputta Moggallana. You'll see them sitting there with their ear turned up, they're kind of listening to the Buddha. And they're not sitting face on, like the Buddha sitting face on, and then you'll see the disciples turned, listening to the Buddha. And this is the disposition of a disciple, somebody who listens, not somebody who's always talking a lot. So that's probably a good place to end. Thank you very much this evening for your attention. Okay.